Hello and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. Last week we were discussing the gilded scion of the British royal family, Prince Albert Victor. Ben, who are we discussing this week? Well, Hugh, I'm going to begin by reading a poem. Great. Wish me luck in getting through this one. If I told him, would he like it? Would he like it if I told him? Would he like it? Would Napoleon? Would Napoleon? Would, would he like it? If Napoleon, if I told him, if I told him, if Napoleon, would he like it if I told him, if I told him, if Napoleon? Would he like it if Napoleon, if Napoleon, if I told him, if I told him, if Napoleon, if Napoleon, if I told him? If I told him, would he like it? Would he like it if I told him? Now, not now, and now, now, exactly as, as kings, feeling full for it, exactitude as kings so to beseech you as full as for it exactly or as kings shutters shut and open and so do queens shutters shut and shutters and so shutters shut and shutters and so and so shutters and show shutters shut and so shutters shut and shutters and so and so shutters shut and so and also and also and so and so and also exact resemblance to exact resemblance the exact resemblance as exact resemblance exactly as resembling exactly resembling exactly in resemblance exactly and resemblance for this is so because oh god i know i know from that style exactly who this is and so today uh, as many of you may know we're going to be talking about the one and only gertrude stein uh, novelist playwright poet and socialite art collector who was the hostess of a paris salon that gathered the cream of interwar modernism including picasso of whom that uh, was the first stanza of a cubist literary portrait um, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Lewis, Pound, and Matisse. Um, and semi-open lesbian, her books included uh, QED, a lesbian novel published in uh, 1903, or written in 1903, um, and Tender Buttons, a book of poems that are full of allusions to lesbian sexuality. But in the last years of her life, as a Jew living in Nazi-occupied France, Stein sustained her lifestyle as an art collector and ensured her safety through the protection of powerful government officials, and she would throughout her life repeatedly express admiration for Vichy leadership and have troubling uh, involvements and in connections to anti-Semitic and fascist politics, despite her own Jewishness. Stein was born the youngest of a family of five children uh, on February 3rd, 1874, uh, in what is now Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to, as I said, upper-class Jewish parents, Daniel Stein and Amelia Kaiserstein. His father was a, her father was a wealthy businessman, and this is a time when in this part of Pennsylvania, uh, German was spoken in the home just as much as English. Um, to give you a sense of what kind of family this was, when she was three, her family decided to uproot them all to Vienna and Paris for three years uh, in order to imbue their children with uh, European culture and history and life, uh, which I'm sure she absorbed a lot of at the age of three. Um, after that trip, uh, they returned to America and uh, settled in Oakland, California, where her father became the director of the San Francisco streetcar system at a time when um, this was a private business. One of the literary phrases she invented, uh, thought to be about her childhood in Oakland, is the phrase, there is no there there. Stein was not particularly thrilled by her formal schooling, but she began to read a lot. She was particularly influenced by Shakespeare, Wordsworth, so far so gay. Um, she also became particularly close with her brother, Leo. Um, when Stein was 14 years old, her mother died. 
Three years later, her father died, um, and uh, her eldest brother then arranged for Gertrude and her sister, Bertha, to go live with their mother's family in Baltimore. And Baltimore is where she met uh, two sisters named Clarabelle and Etta Cohn, uh, who were very important art collectors whose collections later became part of the holdings of the Baltimore Museum of Art. Stein wrote about Etta and Clarabelle once, uh, quote, there were two of them, they were sisters, they were large women, they were rich, they were very different one from the other one. And so Gertrude and Leo uh, soon became part of the Cone sisters' social crowd. Um, there was an age gap uh, between Clarabelle and Gertrude, uh, but they became friends because of their common interest in music and the fine arts. Um, the sisters were influenced by the style. They influenced one another's taste uh, quite a lot. Um, the Cone sisters would end up um, compiling a large collection of paintings and sculptures by Picasso, Van Gogh, Gauguin, and Cezanne. Um, and as I mentioned, all of this um, ended up going to the Baltimore Museum of Art. Uh, Gertrude Stein would later belittle the Cone sisters as shoppers who were only guided by her supreme taste, but in fact, they seem to have influenced one another in the development of their taste quite a, quite a bit. So Stein, uh, from 1893 to 1897, attended Radcliffe College, which at that time was the women's division of Harvard University. And she studied with the psychologist uh, William James. Um, she began to perform experiments on automatism, motor automatism, uh, in other words, how people, what people do when their attention is divided between two activities. Um, and the experiments that she did uh, with these subjects uh, yielded examples of writing that um, sort of represented the idea of a stream of consciousness, um, which is a psychological theory uh, that comes from William James um, and is obviously very influential in the style of a lot of modernist literature. Um, despite the influence of uh, James's work on modernist literature and her own influence on modernist literature, letter, uh, Stein would later claim um, that she didn't accept that there was such a thing as automatic writing. Um, after receiving her uh, Bachelor of Arts magna cum laude, uh, James encouraged her as his most brilliant woman student to enroll in medical school. Um, Stein had no particular interest in medicine, um, but enrolled at Johns Hopkins, um, going back to Baltimore again. She was hanging out with the Cone sisters, spending seemingly more time thinking and talking about art than going to classes, and uh, she ended up failing some important classes and leaving. Um, at this time, Stein uh, was already, uh, you know, did not fit into the... Um, upper middle class and sort of genteel vision of the, the versions of elite education that were available to women at this time. Uh, Stein did not wear a corset. She had an eccentric mode of dress. She was described as, quote, big and floppy and sandaled and not carrying a damn. She gave a lecture to a group of Baltimore women in, in 1899 um, and decided to use this opportunity to provoke her as I said, sort of genteel, uh, middle-class progressive uh, audience by saying, and I quote, the average middle-class woman is supported by some male relative, a husband or father or brother. It is not worth to keep her economically, she is not worth her keep economically considered. 
This economic dependence causes her to become oversexed, adapting herself to the abnormal sex desire of the male, and becoming a creature that should have been first a human being and then a woman, into one that is a woman first and always. She wrote that? Yes. Hmm. Interesting. And, this, and we'll, see, we'll see later on that a lot of her understandings, despite the fact that she is a very pioneering and public queer woman, a lot of her understandings of what that mean um, have a lot to do with actually some very crude versions of uh, inversion theory, which um, lead her to hold and reproduce some very questionable ideas about um, like femininity as a, as a concept. Um, that she doesn't, rather than kind of critique or deconstruct them. Does that make sense? Yeah, because it, <clears throat> it feels at that point that she's, that it's, that, that, that's, that's kind of got the, the seeds of both a misogynist critique and a feminist critique of, of 19th century bourgeois models of femininity, fem, of, of, of womanhood and what the purpose of a woman is. And, and she's both uh, critiquing and, incap- and, and perpetuating this, that, that that model at the same time. It's a, it's a strange sentiment that she has. Yeah, and she, and she will continue to do both. Okay. So it's at this time, uh, while studying at Johns Hopkins, that Stein uh, began to first uh, experience herself as having asexuality. Uh, she became infatuated with a woman named Mary Bookstaver, who was herself in a relationship with a medical student named Mabel Haynes. Um, and despite witnessing this relationship serving as an erotic awakening. This was an unhappy love triangle, which demoralized Stein. And uh, in 1902, Stein's brother Leo, with whom she was very close, uh, left for London and she followed. And then the two of them relocated to Paris. From 1903 to 1914, uh, Gertrude and Leo shared living quarters on the left bank in a two-story apartment uh, at the interior courtyard at 27 Rue de Fleureux in the 6th arrondissement. I apologize to everyone around the world for my French pronunciation. Um, And it was here that they began to uh, collect and accumulated uh, works of art that formed uh, this very kind of prescient and historically significant collection. Um, These were people who, uh, it must be said, never quite had to work. And so they showed up in Paris and immediately furnished their two-story gallery space with Uh, Renaissance-era furniture from Florence, um, and uh, it was all lit very well, etc. So the collection began in late 1904. Um, They were told that they suddenly had uh, 8,000 extra francs in their trust account, which they spent, as one does, at Foyard's Gallery. They picked up a couple of Gauguin's, a couple of Cezanne's, and a couple of Renoir's, you know, when you run out to the shops on the weekend, you know. Yeah. Then, yeah. They're not, as they're you not do. very sympathetic figures so far. As you do. Um, the art collection continued to increase uh, with more Cezanne's, with some Delacroix's, and then it's in 1905 uh, that they get their first Matisse and their first Picasso. Um, the art critic Henry McBride uh, commented at the time, he was the art critic for the New York Sun, said, in proportion to its size and quality, it is about the most potent collection of any that I've ever heard of in history. Um, McBride also observed, and this became a widely circulated comment, that uh, Gertrude collected geniuses rather than masterpieces. So by early 1906, um, Leo and Gertrude had uh, yet more paintings. They had added works by Mangan, Bonnard, uh, Picasso, more by Picasso, more by Batiste, and more by Toulouse, 
the trek. Um, but in April 1914, uh, Leo broke up their living arrangement and relocated to a town in Italy called Settignano and uh, divided the art collection. He took with him 16 Renoirs um, and left the Picassos and Matisse to his sister. Um, the two split in a very acrimonious way. Stein didn't see Leo again until after World War I and only accidentally on the street. And after this encounter, they never saw or spoke to each other again. Um, after the first 40 years of their life having been almost inseparable. Wow. Um, the two split. Do, do, do you know two, the causes of that? What, why why yes. was it acrimonious? The cause was a woman named Alice B. Toklas, who Leo <laughs> would come to describe as, quote, a kind of abnormal vampire. Um, it's like evil, evil the, the, the lesbian version of evil twink energy? Sort of. Sort of. We'll see. I don't really think so, but uh, I certainly the lesbian version of uh, no longer needing to rely on your brother for anything, everything, energy. Um, Alice was born in San Francisco, um, also in a middle-class Jewish family. Um, her father was half of a store called T Toklas Singerman and Company, which was a leading sort of dry goods store. And uh, Toklas was educated all the way through to a degree in piano performance at the University of Washington. And it was the 1906 San Francisco earthquake that made Toklas decided to decide to drop everything and move to Paris. And uh, one day after arriving in Paris, she met Gertrude Stein. Um, and that marks the beginning of a relationship which lasted until 1946 when Stein died. Um, Stein met Toklas, uh, as I said, on September 8th, 1907, and it was at uh, Sarah and Michael Stein's apartment, so her, her brother's, older brother's apartment. Um, this is what Toklas wrote upon meeting Stein. <clears throat> she was a golden brown presence, burned by the Tuscan sun and with a golden glint in her warm brown hair. She was dressed in a warm brown corduroy suit. She wore a large round coral brooch, and when she talked very little or laughed a good deal, I thought her voice came from this brooch. It was unlike anyone else's voice, deep, full, velvety, like a great contralto's, like two voices. Stein's term of endearment for uh, Toklas would become baby precious, uh, while Toklas would call Stein Mr. Cuddleluddle. <laughs> Sorry, keep and, also and sickening. And that, of course, reminds us of uh, Carl Van Vechten as uh, Papa Wujims, Gertrude Stein as Baby Wujims, and Alice Toklas as Mama Wujims. Um, W.G. Rogers wrote in a memoir of the couple that Toklas was, and I quote, a little stooped, somewhat retiring and self-effacing. She doesn't sit in a chair. She hides in it. She doesn't look at you, but up at you. She's always standing just a half step outside the circle. She gives the appearance, in short, not of a drudge, but of a poor relation, someone invited to the wedding, but not to the wedding feast. James Merrill wrote that before meeting Toklas, quote, one knew about the tiny stature, the sandals, the mustache, the eyes, but did not anticipate the enchantment of her speaking voice like a viola at dusk. So we have a viola and a contralto. Before returning to uh, the story of the two women, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Alice Toklas's post-Gertrude Stein career uh, as the author of the famous or infamous Alice B. Toklas cookbook, uh, which is more of a memoir of her life with Stein than it is a cookbook, although it is both, and it became a crucial text in the 1960s counterculture movement. 
Um, it's full of wonderful sentences like, um, a marinade is a bath of wine, herbs, oil, vegetables, vinegars, and so on, in which fish or meat destined for particular dishes repose for specified periods and acquire virtue. Nice. Uh, but infamous... But infamously, the book also uh, includes a recipe that was contributed by her friend Brian Geisen for hashish fudge. Um, this is the first fudge brownie recipe of the international counterculture. Um, she opens the description of the recipe thusly. This is the food of paradise, of Baudelaire's artificial paradises. It might provide an entertaining refreshment for a ladies' bridge club or a chapter meeting of the Daughters of the American Revolution. In Morocco, it is thought to be good for warding off the common cold and damp winter weather and is indeed more effective if taken with large quantities of hot mint tea. Euphoria and brilliant storms of laughter, ecstatic reveries, and extension of one's personality on several simultaneous planes are to be complacently expected. Almost anything St. Teresa did, you can do better if you can bear to be ravaged by un ivoinisme réveil. That's wonderful. So, <clears throat> I love a good, a good hash brownie. So the gatherings in the Stein home brought together uh, people who would help define what this sort of forming, forming style of modernism would be. Uh, we're talking about attendees like Picasso, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Sinclair Lewis, Sherwood Anderson, René Crevel, Cabia, uh, Mildred Aldrich, Van Vechten, and Matisse. Uh, they set Saturday evenings as the fixed day and time for their meetings so that uh, Stein could work on her writing uninterrupted by visitors, and Alice became the de facto hostess for the wives and girlfriends of the artists who would have to meet in a separate room. Um, who else came? Uh, Fernand Olivier would come, Picasso's mistress, but of course only get to go uh, sit and talk with Alice. Brock, Max Jacob, Guillaume Apollinaire, Henri Rousseau, and Joseph Stella. Hemingway uh, did frequent Stein's salon, but they had an uneven relationship. Um, Stein has been credited with inventing the term last generation uh, for those people whose defining moment in time had been World War I and its aftermath. And at this time, uh, while, it was while living in Paris, Stein began to submit her writing for publication. Her first publication that, that got anywhere was a book called Three Lives, uh, which had to be published through a vanity Press, called Grafton Press in New York. Uh, she had the firm printed at her own expense. Um, the book was fairly restrained in comparison to what would follow, uh, but at the time was seen as being very radical in style. Um, there was a writer named Israel Zangwill who wrote, and I quote, I always thought Stein was such a healthy-minded young woman. What a terrible blow this must be for her poor dear brother. Stein also sent copies of the book uh, to African-American writers, including W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. One of the book's three sections is about and tells from a sort of close third perspective the story of a black woman whose name is Melanctha. Um, Richard Wright found at the time that he could, in the character, and I quote, hear the speech of my grandmother who spoke in deep, pure Negro dialect, um, while the poet Claude McKay wrote that he, quote, found nothing striking and informative about Negro life. Melanctha, the mulatress, might have been a Jewess. Stein's next book in 1914 was called Tender Buttons. This is one of her more famous ones. Um, it consists of three sections, which are titled Objects, Food, and Rooms. And each section consists of multiple poems, which describe everyday and mundane objects uh, in short prose poems, but with incredible unorthodox use of language. The book has provoked 
divided critical responses ever since its publication. Some people view it as an incredibly important and innovative masterpiece of verbal cubism, um, of sort of taking this modernist approach of destabilizing and portraying the empty object in the same way that Picasso might, uh, in a 2D painting, attempt to show every side of a vase. Um, however, some people have called it a failure, a gibberish, or a hoax. Here's its first poem, which is called A Carafe That Is a Blind Glass. A kind in glass and a cousin, a spectacle and nothing strange, a single hurt color and an arrangement in a system to pointing. All this and not ordinary, not unordered in not resembling. The difference is spreading. Rather than explore uh, the means in which uh, the signified, the object and the sign, the language are interacting, Stein's uh, approach to writing attempts to deconstruct this relationship and obstruct any kind of systematic achievement of meaning. Um, Stein redefines and undermines meaning through experimental grammar and attempts to displace everyday objects into new contexts. Um, Catherine Kent, in a book called Making Girls into Women, American Women's Writing and the Rise of Lesbian Identity, uh, describes uh, the book's use of familiar ob uh, objects uh, in this way as a way to indulge in, quote, sexual slash textual manipulations. Um, the first poem in, f in the food section, Roast Beef, describes what might be the overarching manifesto of the work it states, and I quote, claiming nothing, not claiming anything, not a claim in everything, collecting claiming, all this makes a harmony, it even makes a succession. Uh, she shares uh, with her great friend Picasso uh, not only a kind of cubism, but also uh, a kind of primitivism. In a book called Modern Primitives, uh, Race and Language in Gertrude Stein, Ernest Hemingway, and Zora Neale Hurston by Susanna Pavluska, um, the argument is made that um, Stein associated repetition with the pleasures of speech and female homosociality, um, and also uh, that her uses of a certain kind of concept of the primitive are very similar to Picasso's. Speaking about Picasso's famous painting, The Demoiselle d'Avignon, Pavlovska writes that the um, African masks in that painting, quote, embody a threat of loss of control, either through sexual engulfment, venereal infection, or being forced to return to a time that predates phallic mastery, all of which occur at the hands of an all-powerful female, who is, of course, the phallic mother. Um, Pavlovska also, in looking at um, Tender Buttons, but especially at Three Lives, uh, describes and I quote, instances of extreme racism, uh, which some critics apologize for as projections of Stein's sensuous side, which of course also plays on certain uh, stereotypes of, of race in the primitive. Yeah, that's strange justification. Pavlovska also writes, uh, the most common responses to the complexities of the racial issues in Stein's early work has been what Marianne de Coven calls a state of mortified denial. This fact has caused Tony Morrison to protest that, quote, it is hard to think of any aspect of Gertrude Stein's three lives that has not been covered except for the exploratory and explanatory uses to which she puts the black woman who holds center stage in that work. In 1933, Stein publishes uh, her most famous book, The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. Um, yes, it is the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas by Gertrude Stein because Stein uh, decided to take the liberty of writing her girlfriend's autobiography. Um, Stein admitted to writing the work in six weeks as an attempt to make money. Um, 
She didn't think it was going to be a success. However, it ended up being serialized in the Atlantic Monthly um, and uh, brought out and it became a huge success because it's one of the more accessible of Stein's written works. Um, Carl Van Vesten quite liked it. Ernest Hemingway did not like it. Uh, Brach thought that Stein misunderstood Cubism and her brother Leo deemed it, quote, a farrago of lies. Uh, but the book did bring in uh, a lot of money, which contributed to her by then somewhat dwindling reserves of uh, trust fund capital, which um, continued to support her throughout the rest of her life. Uh, the composer, Virgil Thompson, who uh, did end up uh, setting some libretti by Stein to music, uh, argued that despite the fact that it's an autobiography of Toklas by Stein, the book is, and I quote, in every way except actual authorship, Alice Toklas's book. Um, what he means by that is that it apparently did, according to him, uh, deeply reflect Alice's point of view, her attitude, etc. Um, some literary critics, including Jeanette Winterson, have noted that Stein creates a new format with this book, building on Virginia Woolf's fictional biography, Orlando, in this kind of reinterpretation of the autobiography. Uh, in a book called The Formation of 20th Century Queer Autobiography by Georgia Johnson, uh, the argument is made that um, 1920s and 1930s lesbian autobiographies uh, represented, quote, a growing deliberate challenge to the figure of the perverse lesbian and an increasing manipulation of the autobiographical genre. These writers queered the terms of autobiography by multiplying their eyes, manipulating subject and object divisions, undermining boundaries between writer and audience, and using repetition and masks to code and expose erotic moments. The ability of these female modernists to question their dominant culture at a time when the sciences, no matter how helpful into putting into discourse different sexualities, were reifying existing patriarchal norms, comes through in their autobiographical plots and structures. In October of 1934, Stein arrived in America after a long absence. Um, she disembarked from the ocean liner in New York to a throng of reporters. There were front page articles about her in every newspaper, and an enormous electric sign in Times Square read, Gertrude Stein has arrived, which is also how I assume that I will be re received the next time I return to the United States. It is amazing that we keep coming up in terms of almost how alien some of 20th century literary culture is in terms of its popularity today. I can't think, you know, perhaps JK Rowling would, 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 uh, would win that sort of acclaim. But, um, in the same way in the Truman Capote episode, um, the idea that you'd regularly have, um, <clears throat> sort of fiction writers and appearing on, on, um, mainstream chat shows, it seems, it seems almost unimaginable today. It does, alas. Um, and also, this is not even a, Gertrude Stein is not even the writer of popular potboilers. This is like an avant-gardist lesbian cubist. Um, but so she toured the country for six months, 191 days of travel, 37 cities, uh, with uh, audiences of 500 in which she would speak and, and answer questions. She was invited for tea with Eleanor Roosevelt. She visited Charlie Chaplin. And uh, she left with a commitment from Random House to publish all of her future works. The Chicago Daily Tribune wrote upon her departure, no writer in years has been so widely discussed, so much caricatured, or so passionately championed. Now we're going to get to some of the troubling things. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, there's that quote um, when Stein is a student at Johns Hopkins, uh, which, as you very aptly said, Hugh, both contains a progressive feminist and a kind of misogynist critique of 
19th century sex gender systems. One of the most it does sound a, it does sound a little bit like um, I'm not like the other girls. Well, yes. Uh, it well, it sort of turns into I'm not like the other girls, and also I'm not like the other Jews. Uh, because Stein began to uh, accept and define and understand her pseudo-masculinity through uh, the ideas in a book by Otto Weininger called Sex and Character. I think Sex and Character has come up on this show before. It's a crucial text of the kind of anti-feminist, um, masculinist, uh, anti-sexological, sexually progressive early 20th century um, movements. Um, Weininger was Jewish by birth, uh, but he considered Jewish men to be effeminate and women to be incapable of selfhood and genius, uh, except he thought that some female homosexuals could approximate masculinity and also male homosexuals because they had nothing to do with women at all were potentially the most likely to be these kind of uh, geniuses. Um, parts of his work were adapted by the Nazis. Uh, however, the Nazis always denounced him and the text. Um, but Stein. Uh, ended up agreeing with Weininger in that she would equate genius with masculinity, which makes it difficult then to think about her as a female and an intellectual and to uh, engage in certain kinds of feminist interpretation of her work. I mean, on the one hand, she is a pioneering uh, woman and lesbian writer. On the other hand, she has a salon where the wives and girlfriends all have to go hang out with Alice and not in the main room. And it's not like if it's not like there are women artists who are coming whose husbands are being dropped off in the Alice Toklas room. And I'm sure the hash brownies were really good, but uh, still it's evidence of a certain kind of attitude. Just to talk a little bit more about the arguments in sex and character. It, it argues that all people are composed of a mixture of male and female substance. The male aspect is active and productive, conscious and moral, while the female aspect is passive, unproductive, unconscious, and amoral. Um, Weininger argues that emancipation is only possible for lesbians, that otherwise the female life is consumed with the sexual function. Um, Weininger had been born Jewish but converted to Christianity, um, but he became a, a really vicious anti-Semite. He wrote, and I quote, Our age, which is not only the most Jewish but also the most effeminate of all ages, an age in which art represents only a sudarium of its humors, the age of the most gullible anarchism, the age of the collectivist ethics of the species, the age in which history is viewed with the most astonishing lack of seriousness, historical materialism, the age in which history, life, and science no longer mean anything, the age when genius could be declared a form of madness, while it no longer possesses even one great artist or philosopher, the age of the least originality and its greatest pursuit, the age which can boast of having been the first to have exalted eroticism, but not in order to forget oneself, etc., etc., etc. Um, and Weininger would end up committing suicide in the house where Beethoven had died because Beethoven was one of his exemplary geniuses. Speaking of the kind of gender relations in the stein tokles partnership and the stein tokles home, uh, Ernest Hemingway described that uh, Alice was Gertrude's wife uh, because Stein rarely addressed his wife and he treated Alice the same, therefore the two wives could chat. Um, wow, yeah, to like, um, to sort of... Uh be praised for your gender relations by um, by Ernest Hemingway is um, quite a quite a thing. Yeah, and uh, in her formal politics, things weren't much better. Um, Stein had always been a conservative, but throughout the 1930s began to be increasingly reactionary. She loved the Republican Party. She hated Roosevelt, uh, and in the Spanish Civil War, she came down on the side of Franco. Um, how did her support for the uh, 
the fascist rebels and Franco under um in, during the Spanish Civil War go down with her avant-garde circle and people like Picasso who had who were living in exile and or, or, or obviously were huge supporters of the um of the Spanish Republic. Picasso, uh, their friendship sort of froze over. Uh, he no longer needed her. Um, some people who were closer or for whom it wasn't as personal uh, managed to kind of find their way through those disagreements for better or for worse. Um, her friend uh, W.G. Rogers wrote, uh, quote, she was a rentier and possessed a rentier mentality in matter of taxes, jobs, and governments. Uh, Janet Malcolm wrote that without her fixed income, we might never have heard of the Rue de Fleurieu, but we, with it, we should not be surprised to find her disapproving of Roosevelt and the New Deal, believing in rugged individualism, favoring a gold basis for the dollar, and regarding a man out of work as lazy or incompetent. In 1934, uh, Stein was interviewed by the journalist Lanning Warren in a piece for the New York Times Magazine, in which she argued that Hitler deserved the Nobel Peace Prize. She wrote, and I quote, the Saxon element is always destined to be dominated. The Germans have no gift at organizing. They can only obey. And obedience is not organization. Organization comes from community of will as well as community of action. And in America, our democracy has been based on community of will and effort. I say Hitler ought to have the Peace Prize because he is removing all elements of contest and struggle from Germany. By driving out the Jews and the democratic left elements, he is driving out everything that conduces to activity. That means peace. Wait, what's she actually saying there? That's strange. So she she she's saying that the the, the Germans are um, unable, to, like as as the Saxons and Germans as a, as a as a race are unable to uh, be productive, and uh, but the and and uh, solely so solely to obey, but then. The Jews and the Social Democrats are do embody this sort of American spirit of, of organization, and no, she's saying that she's saying that because it's not in the German character to for everyone to contribute, the only choices are uh, totalitarian rule or violence and anarchy, and therefore she wants peace on the streets. So keep some of these things that she said and thought in your head, as you ask yourself the following question, how did two Jewish lesbian art collectors survive World War II in Vichy-ruled occupied France? In the 1930s, uh, Stein and Toklas bought a house uh, in the hamlet of Bidignan, which was a few miles from Belay. They would stay there for the summers, and when war came, uh, they decided to remain in that house and would spend the war there and in another house in um, in another small town. Um, they managed immediately to get a military pass from the authorities that they could get their winter clothes and passports and that they could, uh, so that they could try to protect their paintings from any potential bombings. Um, Stein and Toklas in 1939 and 1940 were constantly wavering on the question of whether they should stay in France or go back to America. Um, they seem to have been completely uh, terrified, but uh, as Stein described it in her book, Wars That I Have Seen, uh, a friend, Dr. Shabu, uh, basically told them in the last war, um, when the people who left their houses lost their houses because the houses were destroyed. So you should stay here where we all where we all know you and will help you and not go back to America and risk yourself among strangers. Um, they then, in 1943, moved to a house called Kulo which was a few miles away. 
Um, and uh, apparently at that time, we're told by somebody um, that they had to get to Switzerland immediately or else they were going to be sent to a concentration camp. But Stein seems not to have believed this. And in any case, they stayed, uh, they stayed in that house. Um, Toklas uh, wrote in uh, one of the chapters of the Alice Toklas cookbook, the chapter that's about um, cooking under in a state of deprivation. So, you know, cooking during the war when, uh, when a lot of things weren't as available, um, that uh, different things uh, were not particularly abundant. Um, you know, meat was not particularly abundant. Butter was not particularly abundant. But she also uh, wrote that people came to see us and, of course, they were all in the resistance. Uh, however, at least one of the people who came to see them uh, was not in the resistance. Um, he was actually someone who, after the war, was convicted of collaboration and served a life sentence for hard labor. This was a man named Bernard Fay, who was a university professor and a writer. He was a gay man in his late 40s from a royalist Catholic family and who was appointed because of his impeccable right-wing pedigree uh, as the head of the Bibliothèque Nationale in 1940, replacing a Jew. And he had been close friends with Stein since the early 1920s uh, and would end up writing a memoir in which he identified himself as Stein and Toklas's protector during the war. One of his jobs was to act as an advisor to Field Marshal Patin, the head of the Vichy government. And during one of their meetings, um, he actually uh, specifically brought up Gertrude and Alice to Field Marshal Patin. Uh, and he then wrote, and I quote here, during this horrible period of occupation, misery, and civil war, my two friends lived a peaceful life. They didn't lack courage, they didn't lack intelligence, they didn't lack a sense of reality, and they didn't lack coal. In 1941, uh, Stein decided to engage herself in translating Field Marshal Patin's speeches into English, and her admiration of uh, Field Marshal Patin continued even after edicts against Jews were issued and deportations had began. Um, in 1944, Stein would write that Patan's policies were, quote, really wonderful, so simple, so natural, so extraordinary. Um, and that was uh, what she wrote in the year that all of the Jewish children in the town where she and Toklas resided were sent to Auschwitz and murdered. It seems as though her loyalty to Patan went beyond expedience. Um, she had been accustomed to a life of entitlement. Um, and uh, it seemed like she thought that her wealth would exempt her from what was happening to other Jews in Europe. She wrote an essay for the Atlantic Monthly in 1940, and uh, discussing why she didn't leave France, she wrote, quote, it would be awfully uncomfortable and I am fussy about my food. And Stein would continue to praise Patin even after the war ended and France was liberated. But she didn't have much time after the war was over because uh, on July 27th, 1946, um, Stein was operated upon for, for uh, stomach cancer, uh, but the cancer was no longer operable and Stein died before coming out of anesthesia. Uh, Toklas wrote of the troubled, confused, and very uncertain afternoon of the surgery. Toklas wrote, I sat next to her and she said to me early in the afternoon, what is the answer? I sat next, uh, I was silent. In that case, she said, what is the question? However, in a letter to Van Vechten earlier, Toklas had written, about baby's last words, she said upon waking from a sleep, what is the question? And I didn't answer, thinking she was not completely awakened. Then she said again, what is the question? And before I could speak, she went on, if there is no question, there is no answer. And she named Carl Van Vechten as her literary executor, uh, and he helped to finish publishing out all of her works that had not been published at the time of her death. And that is the life of Gertrude Stein.
Thank you so much to all of you for listening to our show. We've now been downloaded more than 325,000 times, which is incredible. And we're so grateful for all of your support. And especially thanks to our patron listeners. Without your help, it really wouldn't be possible. It really wouldn't be. Um, and so we know you all know this, but we want to let you know that at our website, badgazepod.com, you can find a few very important things. One, you can find a link to our Patreon where you can support the show. Uh, second, you can find uh, some very beautiful T-shirts for sale. I'm wearing mine now, Hugh. Is it not lovely? Very nice. Uh, and you can also find, of course, an archive of all of our past episodes. Uh, we don't work with a media company. We don't put anything behind a paywall. We just rely on people who think that we're doing good work and who enjoy the show to uh, back that up with some support. And so we're really grateful to all of you who do. And we also understand that if you don't want to, times are tough. So you can also just completely keep listening. But uh, if you do want to support us, that's at badgazepod.com. Thanks, Ben. Uh, what a strange life full of, um, full of uh, contradictions, I guess. Um, was it her class position that, that saw her as a defender of Patan and the Vichy regime? You know, the Vichy regime's politics was, uh, was sort of paleoconservative, I guess you'd say, in contemporary terms it was it was about family and uh, nation and um and the capitalist system and that's why uh, they were able to sort of um survive at, at first uh, the nazi occupation of the north and, and make that make that deal is that what she was that at core her, her her own political philosophy certainly um and I think, I mean, I, I think actually in, in many ways, she's sort of similar to Philip Johnson, uh, who we talked about last season, right? Someone who also approaches, an American, who approaches uh, the European modernist project from a position of enormous privilege and takes from it only the sort of, uh, only the parts that are about kind of um, style and aesthetics and the kind of uh, Nietzschean supremacy of the male genius ego um, and not any of the parts of it that are about um, that are about undermining that I mean what's what's interesting to me is you know that the whole thing in Weininger about you know the male genius is conscious and the female genius is unconscious uh, so much of what she's doing in her writing is undermining the idea of conscious writing and then yet she claims that that's not what she's doing. It's like she's so, it's um, like I think some of the work actually goes beyond that in terms of what it's doing in terms of style um, and, and in terms of how she's using language to, 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 to uh, describe or more accurately to not describe. Um, but at the same time, it's just, it's just fascinating how even, even a language that is developed in order to underm undermine the idea of conscious representation then still becomes for her evidence of her own conscious genius, which then places her in the kind of masculine genius category uh, and also in the, uh, not in the sort of not Jewish feminine category. Um, if you go by the Weininger uh, schema. Yeah. Right. I, yeah, I understand. I, I understand that. And, and how, but how, mm did her reputation survive in France survive, um, survive her, her um, collaboration? Cause, cause for a lot of people, um, um, quite rightly in my view, um, in, in terms of the arts and, and literary worlds, um, that was the, the end of your sort of public life. 
uh, to have collaborated? Yes, um, her collaborations were not as known at the time. It kind of came back a little bit later. Um, for example, look at the Alice Toklas cookbook where she says all of our friends were in the resistance. Um, so there's a Janet Malcolm article in uh, 2003 um, that's one of the, that's part of the beginning of this kind of reassessment of her um, of her activities during the war, uh, which I used a lot for research and which I'll uh, obviously cite in the show notes. Um, and so it just, it just wasn't as known. I think also the fact that she died so quickly after the war meant that the I mean, the war was a period of such enormous confusion. I don't say the war was a period of confusion in order to excuse what she did. Uh, I say it to mean that there was just a hell of a lot going on. Uh, and so in 1946, with information flowing more slowly, I think by the time that people got it through their heads, they had survived, and then she just died, and then she was dead. Sure, it wasn't sure. that, yeah. you know, it wasn't that she never had to go through a period of kind of paying accounts uh, for it or, or, or whatever, because it just never... Yeah, as a, as a as a French person in 1946, you had bigger things to worry about than um, than Gertrude Stein's status with the collaborators, I guess. Well, so this is in the field of music um, and not in the field of uh, writing. But um, there was a my father's a cellist, and there were uh, there was a cellist in uh, France who accepted the Vichy regime's promotion. I think that was the extent of his collaboration. He just did concerts. Um, and didn't sort of actively fight. Uh, and there were two uh, people, other cellists who were also in France at the time, who uh, one of whom was Russian, one of whom was American, uh, who were both teachers of my father's and uh, Raya Garbazova and Bernard Greenhouse, and neither of them ever spoke to him ever again. I mean, they'd all been studying together before the war and neither, they, neither of them ever spoke to him ever again. That was it. And rightly so. Fair enough, you know, yeah, right. so, yeah. And do we have um, any sort of uh, information about um, her relationship with other lesbian women um was she part of like a lesbian crowd did they have other lovers either before or during their relationship or was this a sort of unique lifetime love affair i know that stein had other attractions to women before um i think the two of them really settled into a uh monogamous and very strict pattern that's the sense that i get uh, that they really settled into a kind of um, replication of a heterosexual marriage with Stein as the man, quote-unquote, and uh, Toklas as the woman, quote-unquote, Toklas doing the cooking, etc. Yeah, my, yeah. I mean, it, sound, it sounds like that. Um, and it sounds like a lot of her sort of understanding of herself was uh, within within almost sort of gender binary where she regarded herself as... Mas masculine and identifying with the men, the, the men of genius around her. This is true. Yeah, no. And then, and I mean, this kind of inversion theory is not uncommon at this time at all. It's how many people understand their homosexuality at this point. Um, it reminds us a little bit of uh, some of the things we said about Radcliffe Hall in that special episode we did with, uh, with Jana Funk, both in terms of the use of uh, the idea of the primitive as a source for the idea of the invert, which, you know, the use of the primitive as a source for the idea of the invert is uh, my music. That's what I spend a lot of time studying and thinking about. So whenever it happens, I ding, ding, ding. Um, but, but also in terms of the, um, 
the way in which um, she kind of her way of understanding herself as a lesbian was to understand herself as, if not a man, then a mannish woman. I want to drop in one little opera queen reference, which is that uh, Gertrude Stein uh, wrote two opera librettos for Virgil Thompson, the American composer Virgil Thompson, um, who the first one is called Four Saints in Three Acts, uh, which is actually in four acts and about 20 saints. Uh, and that's in 1928 and was written for an entirely black cast to play St. Ignatius, the two St. Teresa's. St. Chavez, St. Settlement, etc., etc. And then she also wrote an opera chronicling the life of Susan B. Anthony, which is called The Mother of Us All. Uh, but in that opera, her libretto also includes uh, many different uh, figures from American history, uh, not all of whom were alive at the time that uh, Susan B. Anthony was. So, Well, thanks very much, Ben. Um, so let's have the big question. Uh, bad gay, good gay? I mean, clearly clearly a lesbian right very clearly gay um i don't know i have i have lingering affection uh for her work um but i don't think that you should describe the vichy government's policies as comfortable natural and beautiful the year that all the jewish children in the town you live in are being sent to auschwitz to be murdered so i'm going to come down on the side of bad yeah i'd 100 agree so if people want to know more about Gertrude Stein, uh, what are some of the sources you use for this episode? Well, there are a lot of books about Gertrude Stein. She found herself in the at the crux of a lot of very important events um, and thereby uh, being written about a lot. Uh, first, I would recommend Stein's own autobiography of Alice B. Toklas uh, as a source about uh, their life together, a book by Mary McAuliffe called Twilight of the Belle Epoque, the Paris of Picasso, Stravinsky, Proust, Renaud, Marie Curie, Gertrude Stein, and their friends through the Great War. Um, there is also, as I mentioned, um, well, I didn't mention yet, actually, there's a biography called Sister Brother by Brenda Wineapple, which is about Gertrude and Leo together. Um, I would recommend... Uh, Tender Buttons, the book by Gertrude Stein uh, herself as a kind of way into thinking about her uh, legacy. An article in The New Yorker called Gertrude Stein's War, the Years in Occupied France by Janet Malcolm, which collects all of her, uh, so many of her sort of problematic political takes. Uh, and then there were a couple of academic uh, books that I cited through, um, that I cited through uh, the episode, um, one of which is called Modern Primitives, Race, and Language in Gertrude Stein, Ernest Hemingway, and Zora Neale Hurston by Susanna Pavlaska, uh, and one of which is called The Formation of 20th Century Queer Autobiography by Georgia Johnson. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you've been listening to Bad Gays. If you want to know more about us, you can find us online, badgayspod.com, where you can find t-shirts, a link to our Patreon, and also uh, a complete archive of all our past episodes. I've been Hugh Lemmy. You can find me on Twitter, at Hugh Lemmy. You can find me at Ben Writes Things and the show at Bad Gaze Pod. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bad.